Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends to find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. On this episode, we'll be talking to someone who knows all too well the common challenges associated with being a transplant patient. And we're going to talk about how to effectively praise your child. Ooh, all that and more right here, The Gifted Life. You guys ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Here on the Gifted Life Podcast, we are so honored to introduce you to Mr. John Hoffman. Hi, John. Hey there. How's it going? John is a two-time liver recipient. He's working on a memoir, and he's helping others uh, through this journey of donation and transplantation. John, we just love your story, and we know for you it started when you were just a, a tiny infant um, way back then. And so uh, we have lots of questions for you, but um, we we know that you're married, you have three children, you have a new perspective. Um, But for you, being a transplant recipient, um, what does donation uh, mean to you? Well, it's it's really amazing, obviously, being on this side of it. Um, But it really means, you know, helping out your fellow human beings, you know, when you have something to give to, to do that unselfishly and to hopefully help someone like me continue to live, you know, healthy, full lives. And we love that you're here and you're wanting to to pay it forward. Um, and I do want you to take us back to when you were born. <laughs> we don't do that with many guests, <laughs> sure. right, guys? Uh, but 1981. And then I know that um, John yeah. has a blog for those of you who are interested, johnstransplantjourney.com. Uh, one of the pictures was your mom, your dad, you as a tiny little boy. I love, love, love pictures. Um, and as I was listening to you and reading your blogs, um, this whole picture was coming together. So if you could take us back to when this all started for you and your family. Sure. So, um, biliary atresia, I don't know how much you know about it, but, um, I was mistaken in thinking it was, it was genetic, but really it's, it's a virus that attacks the bile ducts of the liver. So it's, you know, it's very, uh, mostly in infants and they really still don't know what causes it. But, uh, after about four months after I was born, my parents were starting to notice that although I was eating, I wasn't really gaining any weight. So they, they did the basic stuff. They went to the pediatrician, did all those basic tests, and then they eventually referred me to uh, a pediatric gastroenterologist uh, who was uh, Jeffrey Hines, H-Y-A-M-S. And um, he did he did all those, you know, digestive tests and things like that. And they, they finally, you know, it's one of those things you hear in the movies, you know, it could be anything, but at the worst case, it's this. And that's what it ended up being, which is biliary atresia. So from about six months on, I was I was under the care of Dr. Hines and his team. So from that point, you know, you you understand, of course, you're a baby, but you, your family understood biliary atresia. Um, you know, it's something bad. At what point did they then have to transition to the fact that if you didn't get a life-saving liver, you weren't going to be able to to live much longer? Yeah, well. Right from the onset, I mean, from from the cases they had, they knew that eventually I would need a transplant, and, and there was no there was no real cure except for you know replacing the liver. Uh, they had a few stopgaps. They did what's called Kasai procedures, K A S A I, 
which um, is named after a, a Japanese surgeon, but that basically takes pieces of your intestines and tries to put them in there to kind of to kind of stop gap. But ultimately, you know, the transplant is what I was going to need. I've actually talked to people who have had several of those side procedures that say, you know, they're temporary. But um, it, it became real, I'm sure, for them very quick that, you know, without a transplant, I wasn't going to be able to to, you know, grow up and, and live as an adult. And then this was back in 1981 so is when you were born. So yeah, that, it was right, totally right. different in the transplant world, right? Right. I was going to mention that. Yeah. So, so, you know, so this would have been, so your first transplant was in 1982? 83, January 83. So, yep. you know, so, so to those out there who aren't familiar, obviously with the, how transplants transition throughout the years, that was pretty much at the beginning of the immunosuppressant mm-hmm. time. They had just mm-hmm. developed them over the, the previous couple years. So you were actually fortunate in that from a timing standpoint, had it been four or five years earlier, that, that hadn't been anything that was uh, FDA approved. And, exactly. Uh, so, so you were one of the first to, to not only get the transplant, but, but to start on these immunosuppressant therapy. Mm-hmm. So. So one of the other things, you know, and I, I, I saw kind of look back at your, uh, you know, at your journey. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Thomas Starzl was your transplant surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. So to yep. the, those out there, he's he's he has been, you know, a pretty much a rock star in, in the industry uh, for years. When when we learned I've been in the industry for 18 years. But uh, throughout that time frame, you learn when you when you go l- read about history Pretty much, Dr. Starzl's name was was involved in one of the p- works, one of the papers, and it's because he was such he was he was a pioneer. Mm-hmm. He had done the first liver Absolutely. transplant and done, you know, kidney transplants and such much before everyone else. So it's it's a very interesting that that you had him as your surgeon. So if you can, just tell yeah. me a little bit about you know your interactions with him. <laughs> I I you know as a baby you know he. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, there's there's a there's a documentary out about him. It's called Burden of Genius, and it's only being it was only being screened in Pittsburgh. This was about a year and a half ago, and my mom and I actually took a trip to Pittsburgh to see it. You know, to and, and we got all sorts of insight as to you know what his life was like back then when he was <clears throat> working on the early transplantation process. And um, unfortunately, I never never you know got to speak to him as as okay. a child or you know. I, I was a baby, but my parents had very vivid interactions with him. He was, he was no, no nonsense. You know, he came right in and, you know, one time he, he you know, put his hand on my stomach and, and the, the lore goes that he said, this child is in rejection. And that's all he had to do. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just amazing stuff. And, and yeah. he, he would come in with his wife sometimes from dinner and come in and check on me and things like that. He was extremely dedicated. So, John, of course, you, you had that transplant as a baby and then, uh, you know, and, and it, it allowed you to live some time, obviously, with with that life saving transplant. So tell me about your later years when you were uh, in high school and, and, you know, and beyond. Sure. Well, I mean, as far as as far as uh, medically, I was I did pretty well, you know, throughout grade school and, and into into middle school, I started to have some issues where my, my liver numbers would kind of skyrocket and they, they'd bring me in and, you know, put me on higher doses of immunosuppression and, and do biopsies and things like that. 
but um, overall, I mean, even when I was in there, I, I felt fine. You know, I, it was nothing that I that I felt. It was more just you know what showed up in the blood work, and they were being cautious. So all all in all, I mean, I had a you know pretty normal childhood. I, I didn't I didn't share with many people what had what had gone on. I you know even my scar, I was very self conscious about. I tried not to show it. I you know go swimming with a t-shirt, things like that. It wasn't until, you know, uh, middle school and getting into high school that, that they really told us that, you know, something's not going the way it should be. Uh, one analogy, my, the, the surgeons at Children's Hospital Pittsburgh, my second time around, when I went for my evaluation, they said, you know, think of it as a car firing on eight cylinders. Yours is firing on probably four or five. So it was functioning, but definitely things were, were starting to, to decline. I, I can't exactly explain it, but it seems like because of my size, I was so small because of the experimental surgery. It just seems like things were, were kind of breaking down and they weren't growing with me the way the way it should. And that's that's what eventually happened. I developed cirrhosis, the scarring of the liver. So this is all when you are in middle school, high school. Tell us how that felt emotionally to go through that process of your body starting to not yeah. function the way it should. Yeah, I mean... I, as I said, I mean, most of the time I, I didn't feel anything at all. So all of a sudden my life would be interrupted and I'd be in the hospital for a week. And that mm-hmm. was definitely extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no, you know, no social media, no way to, to connect and do schooling at home like they're doing now. So I was pretty much isolated with my parents and, you know, kind of going through that. Um, but it was also there were times where I did get sick, you know, my eyes would yellow and I I Mm. feel feverish and things like that. So that was, that was scary. I mean, it's not something, like I said, most of my life, I I hadn't experienced any kind of actual sickness with that. So it was definitely something different and definitely kind of a sense of something coming on. So of course your first transplant, you know, you were an infant. Uh, So this was the first time, you know, from, from an understanding standpoint, that you you knew what was going on, you knew that your body was failing, and you knew that if you didn't get mm-hmm. uh, a transplant at some point in the in the near future, that you know that your life would be short. What mm-hmm. so so take us through those you know those high school years and and through the transplant if you can. Sure. So um, in, uh, I had my uh, second transplant evaluation as a, as a freshman in high school. It was kind of a weekend trip to Pittsburgh so they could you know, do some testing and keep me in overnight and get an, eye, an idea and to be able to look at me because they, they had been getting all my statistics from Dr. Himes. So to be able to get a look at me, evaluate me and things like that. So they, they warned me of all the things that could happen. And one of them was uh, called esophageal varices, which actually you know, grow in your esophagus. And it's actually the liver's way of trying to increase flow. But they're actually blood vessels. And they said, you know, they could, they could pop at any time, which could, would cause me to throw up blood and things like that. And that's really, you know, mm. really scared me. Yeah. That was definitely something that I, that I was, was weary about. Thankfully, it never happened, but, you know, always something looming. Uh, I also, as a, as a side effect of liver failure, you have, you have rising ammonia levels. So you start to be you know, kind of cranky and, and irritable and things like that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I, you know, I couldn't really see outside of myself, but I was, I was definitely not always a joy to be around yeah. during my, during the, which are supposed to be right. some of the most fun years of your yeah. life. Unfortunately, I really yeah. didn't always see it that way, which was unfortunate. 
But you know what I took from but, your story? Uh, sure. You're very, um, you know, uh, I was reading your stories like, okay, I'm following, I'm following. So when you were little and your parents couldn't stay with you overnight. Uh, right. I mean, yep. chills to me, that, you know, that has to impact you. Yeah. Um, despite you not being very fun uh, to be around, you had a tight circle of friends that would travel hours absolutely just to be with yeah, you they did and music absolutely yeah that was that was my saving grace i mean they were with me through it all i was never you know the guy the popular kid who had you know 20 30 friends or acquaintances i had a real tight-knit group and, and that was it and they carried me through high school yeah it's I was good very fortunate with that yeah because you know with children and with young adults who are sick there is that element of isolation of feeling different mm-hmm. from others so to have yeah. that group that made you feel welcome and comforted and supported is really important absolutely and i actually married one of them one of them was oh. my girlfriend pretty much throughout high school and now she's my wife so well i thought that was she so really sweet but, by me yeah well wow. you said my mother-in-law would would put these um or what would be your mother-in-law would put these yeah. teenagers in a car and travel and i'm like man that is one yeah. dedicated mama yeah, you're just, <laughs> right you're there uh the other thing yeah, that she that, didn't even know if i was sticking around then so. <laughs> <laughs> we were investing and we were hoping so all, all, amazing right, exactly. and then uh so your wife yeah. karen and then you have um grace who's nine grant who's six garrett who's three um yeah. which is amazing um one of the things that made me chuckle too and i was learning about your story uh was that you said when you were a junior and you got the call like it was time it was a beeper Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they issued us all beepers. Um, mine was like a, it was like a clear purple shell. So I had to get special permission to carry that in, in school. And of course the connotation with kids at that age is I was a drug dealer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all in jest. No, no, I never, thankfully I never got treated any different, you know, but uh, yeah, so they were beepers, and I had several false alarms. And that was always mm. fun running out of a running out of a a school assembly to to get to find a phone to call my parents and yeah. see what was up. I was just thinking, my how how times have changed. We talked about how times have changed just since we started the podcast a couple of years ago. But then mm-hmm. I saw beeper, and I was like, oh, I haven't seen that <laughs> for a while. Uh, oh, the yeah. other thing that I loved was you said music. Um, I think it was one of your blogs, mm-hmm. like that um, yep. kind of helped. It was that like a therapy for you or a calm or sure, absolutely. Well, I I, I was always into music. I played the trumpet since from elementary school all the way through high school so i was in the marching band and so were my friends same, that's where same, you know, we spent a lot yay. of time together but music in general my parents were, were big music fans the classic rock so i was always i was always into that as well which definitely helps yeah so you're you're blogging you're, you're working on a book um like mm-hmm. what what's yeah. changed why why do that what are you hoping to accomplish well I um I spent a lot of time and this is this is all post transplant you know a, a, a lot of frustration and a lot of depression you know I've been given this amazing gift you know I after after my transplant I went into college I wasn't really prepared per se I went in undeclared I kind of did it because you know you're you're graduating high school and that's what normal kids do so that's what I did I didn't really have a direction and that just frustrated me more you know, that I should be doing more with my life and things like that. So through therapy and things like that, obviously I I persevered and and got jobs and and moved on with my life. But it really didn't hit me till a couple of years ago that, you know, my really my best way to live to the fullest and to give back is to share what I've been through and and to to put it to paper and to, to 
hope that others can read it and say, yeah, you know, somebody who, who definitely experienced the worst and made it through. And that's really what I'm hoping to accomplish. My, my dream someday is to be able to, to go to hospitals and to speak about it and, and to, to, give, to give hope and encouragement to others that are in similar situations. Well, I think that's amazing. And, you know, a lot of people, mental health is is getting a little bit less stigmatized. But to hear somebody Mm -hmm. talk about their struggles, it's so common with people who have chronic illnesses, who have surgeries to have this anxiety about living their life to the fullest and doing everything. And it it can cause this negative reaction to life in a way. And so it's right. And for you, especially, you know, when you talked about like the isolation and you didn't have those support groups of people who were there who went through similar things. I think it's incredible that that's your mission now is to help others feel not so alone. And if there's someone who is listening right now who's going through something similar, who's waiting for a life saving transplant, what would your advice to them be? How do you get through it? Well, um, there are always a couple of things that really that really stuck with me now and thinking back and one of them was to, you know, and there were things that I didn't do. You know, I was self-conscious about my scar. I wasn't feeling great. I wasn't this, I wasn't that. I kind of got in my own way, but one of the things is just to, to live. <laughs> it sounds silly, but it's, it's really a mantra. It's just to, to, to live like, you know, you're going to live for the next hundred years. You know, I didn't, I didn't go out for like the tennis team because I want to take off my shirt. I didn't, I did, I did a lot of journalism class in, in, in high school and I didn't pursue it because I thought, eh, what's the point, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's just to, to really take each day, one day at a time and to really do the best you can. And the other thing was, which always carried me through and my parents also is, is to find the humor when you can. There were always things that, you know, and at the time it's like, oh my God, it's just the worst. But when you look back on it, you know, you can laugh about it because we, because we did, we were, we spent a lot of time in hospital rooms together and that's all you can do is, is, is try to laugh at yourself and, and try to see the positive. You must've really enjoyed your time at the, at, at, in those hospital rooms. As I understand you now work at the hospital that you spent so much time <laughs> in, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but it was definitely a, a place where I spent a lot of time and I grew very comfortable. I've always told people I'm, I'm much more comfortable at the time being in high school I was much more comfortable talking to adults than I ever was mm-hmm. with kids mm-hmm. I felt like I had more in common I had more to, to speak about and that, that that came from all those times all those nurses all those doctors mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> I was talking about everything kind of everything kind of clicking for me and, and that was one of the things that happened I, I interviewed for this job at Connecticut Children's which is where my pediatric gastroenterologist still works. So it was, and there were a lot of people. I have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of funny stories, but you know, I interviewed for it. And it was pretty much a slam dunk, I think, for them. I mean, naturally, I was qualified for it, but also I was a former patient. I had this incredible story. True testimonial but, came back. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have one anecdote. I was, I was, because um, in the first month or two that I got hired. And my manager wanted to take me around the hospital as a, you know, as an IT person to see where everything was, and how everything <laughs> worked. And uh, he um, he brought me into one of these. We have a we have daily huddles. One of them is called Triple L and Triple T, but they're basically to go over things that happened overnight and you know try to get a direction for the day. 
so at the end of the, the huddle, he, he introduced me and he says, you know, many of you may not know, but he was actually a patient. And I swear to God, at that point, there was a gasp from across the room. She said, I was your dietitian. Oh. <laughs> and when I was a baby on, on the floor, she was there as oh, my dietitian wow. and she hadn't seen me since then. So she was, you know, she was pretty overcome and it was a pretty amazing thing to have happen. <laughs> Right. And, and as I was going around the hospital, there were several moments where people would would, would see my name and they say, are you the John? I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Superstar. <laughs> well, I was this I like and it. I was that. And yeah, nice. and I felt bad for my manager because we kept stopping. And, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is your life moment. It was pretty neat. Oh, but it, it wow. just reaffirms everything that I'm doing is, 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 is what I need to be doing. It's just, it was really neat. And every day I, I still encounter people that, that I that I remember from back then. And that had to be a boost for them, like back then doing a job at, yeah, you know, absolutely. this piece, this piece, yeah. look where he is now. Right, to see hey, your to see cool. your patient thriving and succeeding. Right. And, you know, yours is truly a story of coming full circle of life. And, you know, now you're mm-hmm. a parent, and I'm sure that brought a lot of perspective on what it was like for your parents to have a mm-hmm. child who was going through a sickness. So for our parents who are listening, what would be something you would tell them? Well, I mean, uh, at, the, at that time, they, there was nobody else to talk to. So they would trust their nurses, trust their doctors, develop a rapport, things like that, and really, you know, keep an eye. And, and there were several times that they noticed things. They, they would report to the doctors, and sure enough, there was something. So just watch very closely. And same thing, just take it day by day. That's all I could really give as, as, as advice. I actually had a, we had a scare with our daughter our first child, she was actually five weeks early. So she spent two and a half weeks in the NICU. So I was, I was at that point, I was intimately familiar with, with having your child in the hospital and, and feeling very mm, helpless. Right. So it was definitely, it was definitely a, a moment for me. Oh, goodness. Well, um, we love your story, obviously. I want to ask you about your book, but I want to tell people again, johnstransplantjourney.com. I love that because I love the pictures and I love seeing the updated pictures of like you and mom and your sister who seems super right. cool, even though you try to make her not sound super. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Um, right. But I love it. But you're bringing us into your life. You don't mind sharing. You're, you're taking these nuggets where we can all learn from. Like I felt the music and I felt when your parents weren't allowed to stay there and your, your circle of friends, like that was amazing. So yeah. um, I can't wait yeah. to get more. So are we are we close on this book? Like where, where are we? Yeah, we are actually, it's been a long process, I'll admit. I mean, uh, I think I started... January of, I want to say 2017 or 2018. So it's been a while, but, but at the same time, we've been very conscientious to, to talk to as many people as we could and people I've encountered recently. I've said, you know, would you mind speaking, you know, speaking about on the book and, you know, to have your quotes put in there and they said, Oh, not at all. But it, it's been a really, you know, it's been a real labor of love to get this to where it is uh, right now. I'm actually in the, developmental editing stage where you, you send it off to somebody and they, they kind of pull out that content. You know, they say, well, what about this? And can you explain more about this and things like that? So we've done that. My parents have you know, put in a lot more detail. I put in a lot more detail and we're getting close to getting a final manuscript. I'm actually talking to a graphic designer right now about the cover and things like that. So I, I, I would hope optimistically by the end of the year that I would have something, um, both online and in print, you know, I'd probably go the self-publishing route. I would ultimately someday like to have a big publishing house do mass production of it, but 
I think while I'm on this momentum, you know, roller coaster, I need to I need to get this out there and get people to, to see it. Well, I love it. I love you, Nuggets. Keep it up and uh, let us know when that book comes out. We'll be rooting for you. Absolutely. JohnstransplantJourney.com. Um, that's where you can find his blog, see pictures. I love that. Um, on Facebook, it's John's Liver Transplant Journey. Also on Twitter, John? Uh, Twitter, it's it's my personal account still. I haven't, gotcha. I haven't gotten everything to Twitter. It's, it's JWH12181. Ooh, sounds official. Twitter handle. Sounds very IT of you, John. Right. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you for sharing your story. You're, you're kind of a pioneer when it comes to, to this um, from the recipient side. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for being open and honest. And uh, thanks for joining us here on The Gifted Life. On the Gifted Life podcast, we like to take a moment for mental health. Yes, Sarah, and this one certainly is one that I'm very interested in learning a little bit more. So can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about next? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about how to effectively praise your child. Okay, hold on, let me get my paper. So don't <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm ready. And this is a good skill not just for parents, but for anyone who has um, children or teenagers in their life. Okay, so the phrase, I'm proud of you. When you first hear that, there's nothing wrong with that, right? right. And truly, there I isn't. I like to hear it. <laughs> right. I am and, proud of you, Lori. <laughs> oh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so saying I, I'm proud of you is a really great thing. This is how we're going to separate it to where it's really effective for your child or for the teenager in your life. So when it's based off of performance or outcome versus when it's based off of your effort or your preparation. So this is where it can be a little bit damaging for kids. When you are only praising them and saying, I'm proud of you because they won, or only based off of the outcome you of You made their... an A. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, I just did this. Hey. Okay. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with letting your kid know that you're proud of their outcomes and their achievements, but when it's only about their outcome and achievements, that's when it can cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of helplessness in kids. So that's the main point of this is we want to make sure you are not – only praising your kid based off of their positive outcomes, but focus on the efforts it took to get where they're mm -hmm. going, regardless of how it, their outcome was. Right? I'm a big effort guy. Yeah, like, I, I think Show even in, yeah. even in in our industry, you know, with colleagues or with family, to me, effort is is the big thing. It's much more important. It's nice to have outcomes yeah. that that kind of parallel the effort, but but most importantly. It's about the effort. Give in the effort. Put in the energy. Right. Well, because Strong we foundation. all right, and we all know that you can put so much effort into something and still fail or still mm -hmm. not do as well because I there's so the many outcomes. <laughs> we all do. It's it's, it's just the truth. Yeah. So when you're only praising your child based off of their outcomes, what can happen is that they start to avoid challenges. They start to set goals that are easily attainable rather than something that is takes hard work or um, will challenge them in the long run. So we want to make sure that we talk about how much effort they're putting into something. Or, you know, if there's a something that they have to go through that's scary for them or that causes them anxiety, you praise them for the effort it took to get through those challenges. And another really good point is that we want to make sure that when we are raising children, their identities are not wrapped solely in their outcomes. 
Because like we said, you can try as hard as you want for anything and you can still fail. And we know that as adults. So we want to make sure their identities are wrapped up in good things like Mm -hmm. their efforts and not just how they did on a test or how they finished in a track race. Mm -hmm. I I have three little ones and they're so different, different personalities, different learning types, all of that stuff. So (laughs) we work with that. Mommy's still learning that. Um, But to recognize that and and appreciate, you know, their efforts. And Laura, you mentioned, you know, the the growth that comes with failure and things like that, you know, and obviously the the goal of all this is to raise uh, an outstanding young man or young woman it's a good human, you know yeah. and 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 for them to understand that it's okay to fail mm-hmm. they'll be a lot more apt to want to try different things that they know okay it's okay that i fail as opposed to those that are just focused on the outcome just focused on i have to win i have to be great at this they don't try as many things they don't have as, as fulfilling a life as a, a young man or a woman because of that right. very thing Right. And you could see how that could cause some really low self-esteem if you only focus on their outcomes, their achievements. Instead, focus on who they are and what it took to get where they are. All good points. Yeah. And a lot of times I think back like, oh, man, when I was in that grade, like I sure didn't bring home all <laughs> all A's. Right. So just do your best. You're not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give it your best shot, though. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that um, Joey and I will be a good parent? I think <laughs> yes. Not together. Okay. So back up. Okay. Not together. <laughs> As separate parents, I think you are both doing a great job. And if you focus on your child and how much you love them and how much you want them to be a good, outstanding citizen, like you said, a good person in their community, tell them they're doing a great job and they're trying really hard and you're proud of them for their efforts. And I'm trying really hard, too. <laughs> yes, it's hard as a parent. It's the effort, right? Yeah, right. I'm trying. All right. All good points, Sarah. Thank you. Maybe you have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover. Um, write to us, info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment, we have a good question that relates to our topic, our earlier um, interview. When was the first liver transplant performed? So the first actual liver transplant was performed in 1963 and coincidentally uh, by John's surgeon, Dr. Thomas Star- Starzl. He was the first guy who, uh, he, he did the first liver transplant. Of course, at first it wasn't successful. They didn't understand the immunosuppression issues at the time. So then, but he was also involved in the first successful liver transplant, which was in 1967. As a side note, the same Dr. Thomas Starzl, he is a very famous guy among, uh, of course, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did the first uh, successful kidney transplants with identical twins. That's kind of when they started realizing, I think, the, the, the issues there. And, uh, and he also did the first kidney transplant from a deceased donor, so which paved the way, of course, for the Lopas of the world. Wow. You're yep. passionate about that answer. I like that. <laughs> this is good history lesson Pioneer. there. All right. We want to hear from you. What question do you want answered? 504-648-3477. We'd love to hear from you. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Xander Anthony Leoto. We learn about Xander from a grandparent. The moment my grandson Xander was born, all our lives changed in so many ways. A beautiful little blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby 
that brought so much happiness the second we laid eyes on him. Xander was the epitome of all things little boy. He loved to play with his squishy toys, monster trucks, rocks, sticks, anything outdoors was his thing. We took him to our camp in the swamp when he turned a year old and spent countless days out there with us. He adored his mama. He loved her so much. Just cuddling with her made his day. He was daddy's little boy and loved to do everything daddy did. On Father's Day in 2019, we got a call that there had been a terrible accident. We raced to Our Lady of the Lake Hospital in Baton Rouge. We spent the next two days literally taking over the halls and waiting rooms of the third floor. The amount of family and friends there with us praying was astounding. On June 18th, the devastating news came from the doctors that Xander was brain dead and would not recover. How could this be? How could God take such a precious soul from us? How would we go, go on without him? The local personnel came to talk to us about organ donation. We all agreed that in our loss, maybe we can help save another. The next two days were spent with an amazing team of Lopa doctors and nurses. On June 20th, we watched in tears as the doctors took Xander to surgery. In death, a small hero was born. We are so thankful for the care and compassion our families received from Lopa, the nurses, and doctors at Our Lady of the Lake. We're even more thankful knowing that our sweet child has been able to save others. And now we pause and say thank you to Xander for the gift of life. And that'll do it for episode 145 of The Gifted Life. Remember, tell your friends, thegiftedlife.org. Yes, we want to thank our guest, John Hoffman, for sharing his story especially the emotional struggles that he had during his time, especially as, as a teenager. can't imagine how, how that would have been. But, you know, oftentimes we as, as men don't really share that part, that side. We try to give that tough exterior. So it was very nice of him to share that with us. And he had different uh, memories, too, that you don't think about when it comes to the transplant journey. So mm-hmm. I appreciated that. And then the beeper. <laughs> I think I heard that from you one yeah, time. But yeah. that's about we used to use the beeper. It. Yeah, back in the 80s. My, how <laughs> times have changed. All right, hopefully we inspired you to sign up as an organ, tissue, and eye donor. You can do that anytime. Registerme.org. And guys, the best place to find us is at our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on our website or anywhere you like to listen, whether it's Apple, Google, or iHeartRadio. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating so that others can find us. Remember, spread the word, please. We're trying to make life happen, and we're doing it together as a team. Now we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Have a good one. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.